You may be seated. Something I want to address before we actually get into our study this morning. First of all, uh, some of you may be aware of the Canadian government's decision <clears throat> to pass Bill C-4, which will amend the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. This bill directly comes against parents and counselors who would seek to offer biblical counsel with respect to sexual immorality and gender. Uh, it most definitely could be used to criminalize evangelism and probably will. And I'd like to read to you from an email that was sent to uh, Dr. John MacArthur from a Canadian pastor concerning this bill. And then Dr. MacArthur sent this out to thousands of pastors across the country. But this pastor from Canada writes, <clears throat> Bill C-4 passed through the House and Senate without opposition. Not a single dissenting vote was cast by any member of the Conservative Party. It received royal assent on December 8th, which means it will come into law after January 8th, 2022. The bill will amend the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. It will criminalize, among other things, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. In the preamble of the bill, it says that the belief that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. According to Canadian law, as of January 8, 2022, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be seen as a myth. The bill defines conversion therapy as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. And then he says, the definition is intentionally broad, and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who either speaks against homosexuality and transgenderism or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual transgender actions and lifestyle. This means as of January 8, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. And then the pastor finished his email by saying this. On January 16th, 2022, that's today, faithful men across this country, speaking of Canada, and many in the United States as well, will be preaching on God's design for marriage and a biblical ethic of sexuality. We will, we will be doing so illegally, declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church, and that Christ alone gets to both define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpit. And we are honored that our American brothers will be joining us in this. And Dr. MacArthur had asked thousands of pastors across the country to preach on this very subject this morning. And I would be preaching on this subject this morning in solidarity with Canadian pastors, except that we just addressed it a few weeks ago. Uh, we, we addressed the issue of biblical sexuality in Romans chapter 1. And so I'm not going to be preaching on that subject this morning. However, let me say this, that myself and the leadership of this church wholeheartedly stand with our Canadian brothers in support of biblical sexual morality. 
And if you've read our statement of faith under the topic of marriage, this is what it says. We believe that God created mankind and that he created them male and female. As such, he created them different so as to complement and complete each other. God at creation also instituted monogamous marriage and ordained it to be between one male and one female as the foundation of the family and the basic structure of human society. For this reason, homosexuality and all other sexual preferences or orientations are unnatural, sinful, and unacceptable to God. Therefore, we believe that marriage is exclusively the legal union of one genetic male and one genetic female, sanctioned by the state and evidenced by the marriage ceremony. Accordingly, this ministry, nor any of its ministers, will, will, not, perf- will not perform any marriage ceremonies between two individuals of the same sex. It will not condone or recognize such same-sex marriages, civil unions, or domestic partnerships, even if the state passes laws that provide for recognition of such unions. That's our stand on biblical marriage. And then with regard to human sexuality, in our extended uh, statement of faith, it says, we believe that the only legitimate sexual relations are between one man and one woman exercised solely within the confines of marriage. Hence, sexual activities such as but not limited to adultery, fornication, premarital sex, incest, polygamy, homosexuality, transgenderism, bisexuality, cross-dressing, pedophilia, and bestiality are sinful and unacceptable to God, and they are totally inconsistent with the teachings of the Bible and the church. Further, lascivious behavior, the creation, viewing, and or distribution of pornography and efforts to alter one's physical gender or gender-related appearance are also sinful, unacceptable to God, and incompatible with the true biblical witness and doctrine. That's our stand. And what is true of all sin is also true of sexual sin. God's eternal judgment will fall upon unrepentant and gospel-rejecting, Christ-rejecting sinners. But the good news is that the grace of God and the gospel offers the forgiveness of sin, a new life in Christ, eternal life to all of those who will repent and put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's the good news. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive homosexual partners practicing homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you once lived this way, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so this morning, we we stand with our Canadian brothers and and pastors across this country, so that as Dr. MacArthur said, and I quote, the governmental forces of evil will be put on notice that divine love and sovereign grace compel us to be faithful to proclaim radical transformation at any cost. This world system and its human governments will gladly send people to hell, but our calling is to rescue people with the truth. And to that, we can all say amen, right? Amen. So having said that, I want to uh, get to our message this morning, and and in doing that, I want to just mention that every year, uh, for a good many uh, years now, we have made available to everyone in the congregation a daily Bible reading calendar. And this is not something we want you to simply take and then put on the shelf and never use. It's not something we want you to do just so that you can check the box and say, well, I read my Bible today. No, we make them available because it is extremely important for us as believers to be in the Word of God on a daily basis. And you say, well, why? 
Well, because according to Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So God's word is powerful. How powerful? It gives life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through what? The living and abiding word of God. So the word of God gives life. It gives spiritual life. It also enables us to grow and to become strong. When Peter said, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Paul, as he met with the elders on the beach at Miletus, as he prayed for them, he said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give to you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the word of God is powerful. It gives life. It enables us to grow and to become strong. You show me a weak, immature Christian, and I will show you someone who spends very little time meditating upon the word of God. The word of God also guides and directs us. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God will keep us from sin. The psalmist also said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the word of God enables us to resist temptation. And as a sharp, double-bladed sword, the word of God is our definitive, offensive weapon against the assaults of a spiritual enemy. When you'll remember in Matthew 4, when Satan tempted our Lord in the wilderness, Jesus wielded the sword of God's word to counter the devil's attacks. And his example teaches us to do the same. The word of God works in us. Paul said to the Thessalonians, this is why we constantly thank God, because when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is. And what is it, Paul? The Word of God, which he says also works effectively in you who believe. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. So the Word of God equips us. I mean, God's Word teaches us what is true and and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. I mean, God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And if we let God's message do its work deep inside, it will change our character and our behavior as it makes us more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ. As Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow. It is able to judge the desires and thoughts of the heart. The power of God's word has the ability to pierce and to penetrate the innermost depths of the human soul. And it can cut through any obstacle to access and and inspect our unspoken thoughts and hidden secrets. It it can cross-examine and judge the attitudes of our hearts. And because the Word of God is living and active, Peter exhorted Christians that they would do well to pay close attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I mean, God's living word is not something to be read or listened to passively and then forgotten. James exhorted believers to look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and, and to focus on it by actually doing what it says. And the result is this person, James says, will be blessed in what he does. So these are just A few of the reasons the Word of God is so vitally important in the life of a believer. And King David knew how precious, powerful, important, and sufficient the Word of God is. And he tells us about it in Psalm 19. 
So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19, which is a, a psalm of thanksgiving written by David and addressed to the choir master or the minister of worship. Psalm 19. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to stand as I read the verses we're going to be looking at this morning. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. And then just so that you can begin to read ahead, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to be back in the book of James doing an over, because it's been such a length of time that we've been out of it, we're going to do an overview of all that we have covered so far in James. And then the following Sunday, Lord willing, uh, we will finish up chapter 3 and then just continue on through the book of James. But this morning, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14, if you'll follow along now, as I read God's word, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden fault. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, my rock, and my redeemer. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. As always, it's important to understand the context of a passage we're looking at. And so in Psalm 19, we learn that, that God has spoken to us in two ways. First, through general revelation, the term theologians, theologians most often use to refer to the revelation of God in creation. We, we talked about this in Romans chapter 1. And so David writes about general revelation in verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 19. And let me just read those. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David's point in verses 1 to 6 is that God reveals himself to man through creation. And this general revelation is available to all people everywhere, and it provides basic foundational truths about God's existence and attributes. It shows to men God's existence, His power, and His glory. But it does not particularly reveal God's character. But it does reveal His existence, His power, and His glory so that mankind cannot avoid the evidence of God's existence and, and nature in and through creation. And this is why Paul could say in Romans chapter 1 that all men are without excuse. But general revelation is a limited revelation. And it certainly testifies to God's existence and power, but it doesn't testify to God's moral qualities. Attributes like justice, mercy, love, wrath, goodness, grace, compassion. General revelation cannot tell man how to know God personally. It's not enough to save man, only to make him accountable and guilty before a holy God. God most fully reveals himself to mankind through his written word in what is called special revelation. 
And this revelation is special because it goes beyond the elementary truths of general revelation and testifies to how a person may know this great God personally and how he or she may live in a manner pleasing to this great God. I mean, the sun and the skies reveal the existence and the infinite power of God, but it is the Word of God which reveals the only way to know God personally. Salvation comes ultimately only through special revelation as the Word of God is effectually applied by the Spirit of God. And so David shifts from from praising the God who reveals himself in creation in verses 1 to 6 to praising the same God for revealing himself in his word in verses 7 to 14. And in doing so, he gives us the greatest statement ever made on the sufficiency of the word of God. In the first six verses, the name of God which David used is El. It's the most generic of all names for God, and it it speaks of God as the Almighty or Omnipotent One. It's the name that speaks of God's great power. And so it's appropriate that David would use that name for the Creator who is made known by general revelation through His creation. But as we come to verses 7 to 14, the name of God which David uses is Yahweh. The personal covenant name of the God of Israel, which is appropriate for the special and specific revelation of God as the one who enters into covenant relationship with his people. And David gives us six descriptions of the sufficiency of God's word. He describes what God's word is and what it accomplishes in our lives. First of all, notice the word of God converts. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And the law is literally Torah. And the root meaning of the word Torah is instruction. It has to do with everything that God has revealed or says. And our best equivalent uh, would be Scripture or the Word of God. And so we would understand the verse to mean the Scriptures or the Word of God is perfect. And the word perfect is the translation of a common Hebrew word meaning whole or complete or sufficient. It conveys the idea of something that is comprehensive so as to cover every aspect of life. And so David says the word of God is perfect. It's complete. There are no deficiencies. There are no errors or omissions. There is nothing left out that is necessary. And while it does not give us all knowledge, it does give us everything we need for life and godliness. And all the knowledge that it gives to us is true and perfect. And what is it that the perfect, complete Word of God does? Well, David tells us here, it revives. Probably better translated as it is in the New King James Version as converts. Because the Hebrew word means to rescue, to restore, to cause to return, to recover, to repair, to bring back. It is by the perfect Word of God that people are converted. And the type of word it is in the Hebrew tells us that it is God who causes the converting to happen. And through His Word, He does it. And it's a continuous, ongoing state of activity. David is telling us that God, through His Word, converts the soul. The Word of God is so complete, so powerful, that by it men and women are converted. As we read a moment ago, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And how are people going to be shown their need of a Savior? Where are people going to see their sin and the desire and the dire predicament they're in apart from Christ? Where? In the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is the Word of God that converts sinners. No matter what our sins may have been, the Word of God is so complete, so powerful, that it will turn us from our sins to Jesus Christ and transform us. It is by the Word of God, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, that men and women are converted. And this converting, this 
rescuing is, is an ongoing state of activity that continues throughout our Christian lives in the process we call sanctification. As God works in our lives, just conforming us more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ. You see, salvation is just the beginning of this continuous transforming work that God does in our lives by His Spirit through His Word. So David tells us the Word of God is perfect, converting the soul. It is sufficient for the conversion and the transformation of the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Secondly, the Word of God makes one wise. It makes wise. Look back at verse 7. David writes, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word testimony means divine witness. And the Word of God is God's divine testimony to who He is and to what He requires of us. And His testimony, David says, is sure. And this word sure means His testimony is unwavering. It is immovable, unmistakable, reliable, and trustworthy. The Word of God is sure. It is not unstable or fallible, but unwavering and immovable. Therefore, we can trust it. It's the foundation on which we can build our lives. It is in the Word of God that we find truth and direction for our lives. It's in the Word of God that we find comfort. The Word of God is sure. And in a world full of uncertainty, what a blessing it is to know that we can rest upon the unwavering, reliable, immovable Word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, David says, making wise the simple. And Making wise is a Hebrew word that means wisdom, to, to make firm, sound, free from defect. And once again, the, the type of word that it is tells us it's God who causes this to happen. And so through His Word, God causes one to be wise, to be sound. I mean, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You see, loved ones, those who humbly come to Jesus Christ receive the Word of God and they're made wise unto salvation. But not only is the person who comes to Christ in humility made wise unto salvation, he or she, as they continue in God's Word, will become wise. And wise doesn't mean someone who just knows facts. That's not wisdom. Rather, it's someone who is given the ability by God to live a godly life by being able to apply the Word of God in their daily living. That's wisdom. The Word of God contains the treasures of God's wisdom and it, it brings divinely bestowed spiritual understanding and discernment. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so the man or woman who submits to the Word of God will continually be given wisdom, understanding, and discernment. And they'll be able to deal with the issues of life because they're using God-given wisdom instead of the wisdom of man, which the Bible says in reality is nothing but foolishness. And as one man said, every fork in the road does not have a biblical arrow. We need wisdom for decision-making, and it comes from the Word of God. And so the man or woman who is immersed in the Word of God is equipped to choose wisely where no explicit direction is found. The Word of God is sufficient to convert. It's sufficient to make wise. Thirdly, it brings joy. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts of the Lord are, are the principles and guidelines that we're to live by. See, God has placed in His Word everything that we need for godly living. It's all there. And David says the precepts of the Lord are right. And right doesn't mean correct as opposed to being wrong. This word right means straight as opposed to being crooked. 
It's the sense of showing someone the true path. So the Word of God sets before us the right path to walk through this difficult life. And so not only is the Word of God a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, it lays out the straight path for us. And because it puts us on the right path as we walk according to the Word of God, it brings great joy. David says, if you look back at the verse, the precepts of the Lord are right. What? Rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. And it means to cause, to rejoice, or, or to gladden. And it too is a continuous and ongoing state of activity. Only there's a, a high level of intensity involved here. In other words, God through His Word really causes us to be glad and, and to rejoice because He intensely desires to make our hearts glad. And He does so through His Word. Because it's there that we find true and lasting joy. I mean, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, found joy in times of trial and great stress in the Word of God. It was the the joy of his heart. Jeremiah said in chapter 15, verse 16, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. So even the weeping prophet found joy and delight in his heart in the Word of God. I mean, God through His Word brings joy to the heart. Well, where does the unbeliever go for joy? I don't know. The cannabis dispensary? A bar? The mall or a restaurant? Where does the unbeliever go for his joy? I mean, the world knows nothing of of this genuine, deep-seated joy because they don't know Christ. They don't know anything about this genuine, deep-seated joy because it's found in Christ and, and in His Word. I mean, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They, they bring a deep-seated joy to all who walk in them and not in the superficial happiness that the world knows. I mean, as Christians, we're supposed to be a joyful people, Right? When the church is supposed to be the community of the joyful. And people should see that joy. That's not something you want to hide. People should see that joy. I mean, when an unbeliever walks into the church, he should see a building full of people who are glad and, and with hearts full of joy. Why? Well, because of all people, we have something to rejoice in. I had a pastor tell me one time, we don't want anybody smiling in this place. What's wrong with you? That's that's not a joke. That's a true statement. Now, the church should be full of people who are glad with hearts full of joy, and that joy is going to be expressed in our countenance. I mean, the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? Through His Word, God intensely desires to bring joy and and rejoicing to our hearts. You see, God's Word is not a burden to take away your fun. I mean, so many people see God and His Word as, you know, see God as a killjoy and His Word as just taking away all of their fun. That's not true. God's Word is a blessing to give us real joy in every circumstances of life if we'll follow it. And so if you're lacking in in the joy department, you need to dive into God's Word and and spend some time there and and find out all that you have to be joyful over. And the one who knows the Word of God and the God of the Word rejoices. They find joy. Remember, joy isn't happiness. This is is a deep-seated joy that, that isn't affected by circumstances. The one who knows the Word of God and the God of the Word rejoices because they find joy. They find actual pleasure in the truth of God and in relationship with God as it's revealed in His Word. So the Word of God is sufficient to convert, to make wise, to bring joy to our hearts. Fourthly, the Word of God enlightens. It enlightens us. Look back at verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The commandment means the, the orders of the Word of God. The commands of the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is not a book full of suggestions, though many people live like that. The Word of God is not a book of suggestions, but rather of God's commands. And David tells us that his commands, his commandments are pure. And pure means clear. And the Word of God brings clarity. It enlightens the eyes. In Hebrew, it it is giving light. It means to illumine, to light up, to cause to shine. Through His Word, God enlightens or gives light to our eyes. You know, where there is spiritual darkness, it brings spiritual light. Where there is ignorance, it brings understanding and illumination. As the psalmist said, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Word of God lights our way. It enables us to walk the path set before us without stumbling. It also purges the darkness out of us and allows us to see things clearly and without distortion. The Word of God enlightens us by lighting the way and enabling us to see things clearly through spiritual eyes. And it brings understanding so that we can see how to live and and what to do and and how to relate, etc., etc. And next we see the Word of God endures forever. Look at verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And though fear is not technically a term for Scripture, it is used here as a synonym for God's Word. Uh, This is the way that most commentators take it. And so it describes the Scriptures by the effect they produce in those who respond to the revelation. So the word of the Lord is clean. And this word clean means without impurity, filthiness, defilement, or imperfection. So David is telling us the word of God is without sin, evil, corruption, or error. The truth that it teaches is undefiled and without blemish. Corrupt things decay. But that which is pure endures. And because the Word of God is entirely pure, it will endure forever. I mean, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And the Word of God is permanent, and like God Himself, it is unchanging. So you see, the Bible is not outdated. Its commands and precepts are not culturally irrelevant. No, the Word of God is relevant to everyone in every age. It applies in every culture, in every age, to every person. God's standards are not relative and shifting. We're not not to be tossed around by every wind of doctrine in our day, but rather to live by God's unchanging standards revealed in His Word. God's Word always has been and always will be relevant and sufficient. And people today think truth changes from generation to generation and that nothing is certain, except that nothing is certain, right? But the Bible teaches that truth is absolute and unchanging because it is grounded in the very character of God who himself is unchanging. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Peter said, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the word of God is pure. Its its power and purpose never end. We can always count on God's Word to do its work. It never returns void. And God's Word doesn't change with the seasons or with fashions or fads. It is always in. It is always relevant. And it will endure forever. The sixth thing we learn about the all-sufficient Word of God is that it warns us. It warns us. We read in the second half of verse 9 and then in verse 11. Verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, 
Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Now somebody's thinking, hey, you skipped verse 10. Don't worry, I'm coming back to it. We don't do that. The rules or the word of God is true, David says. It is sure and it is altogether righteous or righteous altogether. In other words, there is nothing false or unrighteous in God's word. The word of God is an exhaustible source, an exhaustive source of truth and righteousness which provides us with the standard of righteousness. So there's no guesswork. There's no guesswork. God's word provides us with his standard of righteousness and that's the only standard that matters. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 160, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And because the the words of God are true and righteous, the servants of God are warned by them. And those who keep them are rewarded. The word of God warns us, it confronts us, David says. And in Hebrew, it is being warned. It means to instruct, admonish, and warn. So through his word, God continually warns us. When it's an ongoing state of activity, he continually instructs, admonishes, and warns us. Warnings like, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way to death. And the Bible is full of warnings. They're like, you know, great big uh, red flashing warning signs. The Word of God warns us against temptation and sin. It says things like, flee youthful lusts. Flee sexual immorality. The Word of God warns us against the lies and errors of the world. The Word of God warns us against false teaching and false teachers. And if more people meditated more often on the Word of God and His truths, they wouldn't be uh, taken captive by false teachers. People follow false teachers because they are ignorant of the truth of God's Word. The Word of God warns against false teaching and false teachers. The Word of God warns us. It continually instructs and admonishes us. So you see, the Word of God really is sufficient. It converts. It gives life and transforms life. It makes wise, first unto salvation, and then it brings divinely bestowed spiritual understanding and discernment. It brings joy to our hearts. I mean, real, deep-seated joy. It brings clarity and enlightens us. It's pure, undefiled. It endures forever. God's truth never changes. And it warns us. Why? Because God loves us. So He warns us. He continually admonishes and instructs us. And the Word of God is sufficient for all things. I mean, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so everything we need for life and for living a godly life is given to us through the knowledge of Christ. And where do we find the knowledge of Christ? Right here, in this book. In this book. That's where Christ is revealed to us. You see, loved ones, there's no substitute for the Word of God. You can listen to all the podcasts of your favorite preachers, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's no substitute for the Word of God. Sitting under the preaching here on Sunday mornings is no substitute for your own time in the Word of God. And our spiritual life and health depend upon our submitting to and obeying God's Word. And the Word of God is not only sufficient for our spiritual life, it's sufficient for all of life. All of life. Because the Word of God is the only reliable source of answers to the human dilemma and and the problems of man. Again, we can't trust the wisdom of man because the Bible says that's foolishness. But we can get the answers to life's hardest questions in the Word of God. 
And so why are Christians running off the psychologists and psychological counselors? Heaven forbid. What does someone who is only conveying to you what godless, atheistic, many of them evolved in the occult, I mean, that's all they're conveying to you. And they might, if they call themselves a Christian counselor, throw in a verse or two. But there's nothing Christian about psychological counsel. It is godless. It is atheistic. It is opposed to the Word of God. Because it does, and it, and it doesn't deal with the real problem. The best it can do is bring outward transformation, whereas the Word of God transforms the heart. The Word of God is sufficient for all of life. We find the answers to life's hardest questions in the Word of God. I mean, really, seriously, back to this issue of psychology, do you really think that you're going to find the answers to the human dilemma and to man's greatest problems from the counsel of godless, atheistic men? Evolutionists? What do they have to add? How are they going to help you with that kind of counsel? In His Word, God has made available to us His perfect wisdom and and the indwelling Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth. And the Word of God is sufficient. It's what we need. And by keeping it, the last part of verse 11 tells us, look, in keeping them, there is great reward. In keeping or obeying the Word of God, there is great reward. I mean, this is not speaking of material reward. Now, this Hebrew word for reward speaks of spiritual blessing, not temporal riches. And so in keeping or obeying the Word of God and in living the Christian life, there is great reward. I mean, sure, we're going to receive rewards in heaven for our faithful service. But we receive great reward now in keeping the Word of God. Say, well, like what? The blessings of having a relationship with the true and the living God. The blessing of the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The blessing of being set free from uh, the guilt of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin. The blessing of God's love, His mercy and grace and His power in our lives. The blessing of the deep-seated joy and peace that we have in our hearts in every circumstance. And all the joys and blessings that come to those who live by the Word of God. The Word of God is sufficient, and in obeying it, there is great reward. And you know, most often, you know, people are having issues, troubles, and they want to, you know, run from this counselor to that counselor to this counselor to that counselor. Most of the time, it's not that they don't know what to do. It's not that most Christians don't know what to do. They just don't want to do it. They don't want to obey the Word of God. They'd rather find someone who will tell them a way that they can weasel around it as opposed to repenting of their sin, humbling themselves, and walking according to the Word of God. The Word of God is sufficient. And in obeying it, there is great reward. Obedience to God's word results in rich spiritual blessings. And because of this, the word of God is to be desired above all things. Look now back at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This means that God's word is infinitely more desirable and valuable than anything that this world has to offer. 
David tells us it's to, be, it's to be desired more than gold. And he didn't just say gold. He said much fine gold. I mean, David's point is clear. The benefits of knowing and doing the word of God are greater than all that money can buy. And the values of, of the word of God cannot be computed in terms of gold. But as one commentator noted, the word does have this one thing in common with gold. Men must dig for its treasures. Great wealth is hidden in the pages of God's book, and man's best interests are served by searching for them. And David also says the word of God is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And the best honey uh, was that right out of the honeycomb. And this speaks of, of great pleasure. And David is saying the word of God is to be desired above the greatest pleasures that this life has to offer. Why? Because riches and pleasure can't save a man's soul. Those things will pass away. The greatest riches and pleasures of the world are nothing, nothing, when compared to the word of God. Because in the all-sufficient word of God, we find all things necessary for man's salvation, his faith, and his life in this world. His spiritual life and spiritual treasure is more valuable than all the world's material wealth. Because all the world's material wealth is going to pass away. And so the word of God and spiritual life and spiritual treasure should be sought after with more energy than we expend uh, on pursuing uh, the world's material wealth and pleasures. The word of God, David said, is to be desired more than much fine gold and it's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And the word of God meant more to David than great riches and, and great pleasure, more than the sweetest things in life. So what does the word of God mean to you and I? I mean, how much do we desire it? And how much energy do we put into learning and knowing the word of God? I'm not, and I'm not talking about learning about the Word of God, you know, just acquiring a lot of knowledge. I'm talking about knowing the Word that we might know the God of the Word more intimately. Learning the Word and then actually applying it in our daily living. That, that's true knowledge and wisdom. And everything we need for life and godliness is in God's Word. God has made available to us his perfect wisdom in his word. The word of God is sufficient. It's never failed. Oh, we have failed. And we fail often. We fail the word of God, but the word of God will never fail us. Just as the God of the word will never fail us. The word of God converts, makes wise, brings joy, enlightens, endures forever, and warns, and God will cause all of those things to happen. He'll do all of those things in our lives through his word. There's only one catch. We have to be open to it. We have to be willing to actually submit to his word. And be open to receiving his instruction. Look back at verse 7. David says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word simple there does not mean simple-minded or foolish. It actually means the one who is open-minded. 
the one who is open to receive the instruction of wisdom. So God will do all of these things in our lives if we are open, if we are willing to receive instruction from him. Which means we must be willing to submit to and obey his word. I mean, it's humbling ourselves and submitting our lives to the word of God. And as we do, the spirit of God through the word of God will do all of these things in our lives. And so are, are, are you open-minded? Are you open in the sense that you're willing to receive the instruction uh, of wisdom from the Lord and then prepared to obey it? I mean, the word of God is clear. It is sufficient. And we desperately need the word of God. Why is it that you think the enemy, uh, our spiritual enemy, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of, of the church, tries so hard to keep us as individuals from the word of God and, and, and seeks to keep the word of God from being faithfully proclaimed in pulpits? Why is that? Because of all these things we've read about today that the word of God is to us. We need the word of God. And now in verses 12 to 14, David concludes by showing us how we're to respond. Because you see, the Bible uh, is not given for speculation, but rather for application. And so after rehearsing God's general revelation to man through creation in verses 1 to 6, and then God's special revelation through his word, which we've looked at this morning, David responds by acknowledging his own sin, and he calls out to God for help in overcoming it so that he might lead a life that is acceptable to God. He says in verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. You know, who can discern his errors? It's a rhetorical question. And the point he is making is no one. No one can discern them. David understood that he had ignored and disobeyed God's word even more than he was aware of. And when we think of how holy, just, and perfect God is and, and God's word is, and we realize what failures we are and how sinful we are, I mean, we'll say with David, who can discern his errors? I mean, who can recall the number of times we've departed from God's word? Who can recall the number of times we've sinned? I mean, Spurgeon said, we sin when we pray. And he meant by that that our motives oftentimes are, are phony. They're not right. We ask for sinful, foolish things. And who can recall the number of times we've sinned? And knowing that he couldn't know just how many his errors were before God, King David wisely prayed, declare me innocent from hidden faults. You know, hidden faults describe sins that were unintentional. They would have been committed out of ignorance, inadvertently or unknowingly. They were not premeditated sins. And hidden faults are those sins we don't even see ourselves. Sins we don't realize that we've committed. Because you see, the fact is, sin is so much a part of us that we don't even realize much of our own sin. I mean, God has to reveal them and, and deal with them in us. But even though we don't realize we've committed them, even if we're ignorant of them, they're still sins. Right? Because sin is sin. And so the fact that we don't realize we've committed them doesn't excuse us from them. We're still accountable for them before God. And you see, David wisely uh, knew that he wasn't able to detect all of his sins. And he knew that he needed cleansing from them. 
And so he prayed for God to declare him innocent. In other words, to forgive him for any sins that were hidden to him at that moment, sins that he wasn't aware of. And then in verse 13, he prays about willful sin. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And what David calls presumptuous sins are those you do with forethought and defiance and rebellion. Those intentional sins. And they're fully intentional. It's with our eyes open and with a heart that says, I know God says this is wrong and harmful, but I just don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do it anyway. It's sinning in, an, it's sinning in arrogant defiance of a known law. It's outright disobedience. I mean, there are times when you know what God wants you to do. You know what God's word says about something. And yet you act like a defiant child and say, I will not. I will not. And you see, David added this because he knew that his problem was greater than hidden faults and unknown errors. Without God's help, which he prayed for here, David was perfectly capable of committing presumptuous sins, sins done in a proud and defiant way. And so David prayed, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And Spurgeon said, will you just note that this prayer was the prayer of a saint, the prayer of a holy man of God. Did David need to pray thus? Did the man after God's own heart need to cry, keep back thy servant? Yes, Spurgeon said, he did. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I mean, David not only knew that he was capable of such sins, he also knew that they could have dominion over him. And David feared. He feared the dominion of such presumptuous sins in his own life. And he doesn't want either kind of sin to dominate his life, hidden or presumptuous. And so he prays that God would keep him from these sins. And with respect to presumptuous sins, this is not a prayer of forgiveness for presumptuous sins that David had already committed. This is a prayer for power not to commit presumptuous sins to begin with. And so his prayer is that God keep him from presumptuous sins and from dominion, the dominion of such arrogant sin. I mean, they're that powerful. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then he said, I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I mean, David knew that if he was forgiven of hidden sin and kept from presumptuous sin, then he would be blameless and innocent of great transgression. In other words, he would be free of, of any serious sin. And he's saying that when he's forgiven of sin, he'll be blameless before God and therefore welcome in his presence. And Spurgeon said, this earnest and humble prayer teaches us that saints may fall into the worst of sins unless restrained by grace, and that therefore they must watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. And then David closes this psalm with one of the best known verses in the psalms. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In verses 1 to 6, David dealt with general revelation, the general revelation of God through creation that reflects the glory of God. In the verses we've looked at this morning, he's dwelt upon the special revelation of God through his word, and now David prays that his words to God and the meditations of his heart, he prays that they would be acceptable to God. Because, you see, David understood that real godliness uh, is not only a matter of what a man does, but is all, it's also uh, a matter of what he says 
and what he thinks in his heart. And so his prayer is that everything he says and everything he thinks will be acceptable to God. This is just a beautiful verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He responds to God as my rock and my redeemer. He did not say my accuser and my judge. Rather, he said my rock and my redeemer. And rock refers to a place of refuge, a place of shelter, safety, and a secure standing where he can run for protection and rest. And redeemer refers to one who has protected or rescued another from bondage and slavery by paying a required price. And my means that David had fled personally to God for redemption. God has revealed himself through creation, which tells us that he exists he is all-powerful. But God has also revealed himself in his word. And the Bible shows that he is our redeemer from sin. That he is the one who is able to break sin's bonds and set us free. And that he is the rock upon which the redeemed man or woman can build and be kept from sins and, and be kept safe. And as we learn of him through his word, our hidden sins and rebellious acts will be uncovered so that we might find forgiveness and the spiritual strength to resist greater sin. So God has made himself known through his world and through his word. God's world shows us how powerful he is. But God's word shows us who he is and how we can be made right with him and how we can live a truly blessed life in him. I mean, he, he is the Lord. He is our rock and our redeemer. And we are safe in him. And that is such a comfort, isn't it? And so I want to encourage you this morning to spend time every day in the word of God We're to desire the word of God above the greatest pleasures this life has to offer. Why? Well, because everything we need for life and godliness is found in God's word. Put down some of the other books you're reading for a while and read the word of God. And don't just read it, meditate upon it. Because the word of God converts, makes wise, brings joy, enlightens, endures forever, and warns. And God will cause all of these things to happen. He will do all of these things in our lives through his word. Beloved ones, we have to open it up. We have to open it up and spend time in it. And then we have to be open to it. We have to be willing to submit to God's word and be open to receiving his instruction. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and